Hello everyone, welcome to the Behind the Wheel podcast, the culmination and brainchild of my love for cars, but also my desire and deep-rooted mission in life to make sure that you young people out there, and even those who are a bit older as well, can build a life around what they love doing, around, hopefully, cars, because we all love cars, right? And I am so delighted to have someone who, believe it or not, guys, has actually been involved in probably... No, in certainly my most favourite film franchise ever in the world. So, and the other thing is, I'm a bit of a vigilante. I do not like people getting ripped off. I really, I really loathe that. And people are taking advantage of other people in the car segment. I'm not a big fan of that, of course. And I try and call that out. So, I'm probably the happiest person you know. <laughs> I said, how do you do that, you know? And I said, I don't give anybody free space in my, or free rent in my head. And it's so, so great to have Craig here join us. Craig, how you doing, man? I'm good, Muhammad. Good to see you this morning or this yeah. afternoon in your, in your, in your case. Indeed, right? indeed. Yes. <laughs> we were just lamenting my, my, my many, my many um, sorrows about getting time zones wrong. But yes, we got there in the end. Uh, Craig, I guess firstly, I want to kick things off because when I read about you, when I when I'm watching your videos, and when I when I was educating myself on your life, one of the most kind of standout things that I sort of realized was, man, you are an incredibly you are such a lucky person to to kind of be able to, you know, go to work every single day and work around what is so clearly a real love for you and a real passion for you. Um, but for those who don't know, um, just tell us a little bit about how this kind of journey started for you, Craig, because it's, it's obviously gone into writing books and movies and there's so many different parts of you, but where does it all start, Craig? Well, it started when I was 15 and a half and now I was stealing my dad's car. <laughs> <laughs> He'd go out of town for the weekend and I would start doing loops around the neighborhood, you know, to get familiarized with uh, driving a car. And I wasn't out doing crazy stuff or anything like that. I was just want to learn how to drive. And then over the years, I went, you know, those formative years from age 16 to around 24, I was just learning how to build cars by using a repair manual. Uh, people who are in my age group, I'm in my mid-50s now. Um, but back then, they didn't have the internet. It didn't exi- It just didn't exist, right? They had no YouTube. There was no MySpace, none of that stuff. So if you want to know how to fix a car, you had to work on them every day, or you have to go buy the Chilton's Repair Manual, which is about uh, two centimeters thick, okay? Right, right. Okay? And it tells you how to do everything, and that's how I built, rebuilt my first engines and so forth. And everything else was just by working on cars and figuring everything out. But this was before computers, and, you know, ECUs, none of that stuff existed at that time. So everything was mechanical and was pretty easy to work on. So it just kept going and I kept getting better and better cars. And over the years, I found myself working in positions in the professional industry, or professional uh, auto aftermarket, if you will. I worked at a, a, a chain of auto parts stores in America. We have several chains and we did that back then as well. And I was working on the parts counter. People come in, ask for parts, blah, 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 blah. So I had to learn a lot about a, a lot of other cars. Right. And uh, foreign cars weren't a big deal then. But for me, I was always in foreign cars. I had a Mercury Capri, you know, early 70s, 73 and the 76. Uh, I had uh, an Audi Fox. I had 
any Zuzu, iMark, I, I, Dots and Zs. I've had three or three or four, I always forget, Dots and Zs. And I had a few American cars over the years. So around 1990 or 1991, I was working for Northrop uh, in public relations. We were working on the B2 Bomber Project. I was at the NGK Spark Plugs booth, our seaside suite at the Long Beach Grand Prix. And I was talking to this guy. He was the director of uh, sales and technical services. So he knew I, we talked for three days and then he invited me to join the company. And then I was six years working in the motorsports technical marketing department. So I traveled all over the country supporting indie car race racers like Bobby Rahal, uh, drag racing teams, all that kind of stuff. So six years of that, then I was recruited by iBox Springs. So then I was working iBox Springs for, Oh God, two years. And then I, I was recruited by Super Street uh, Magazine, which is a big magazine in the United States, to run this new drag racing series called Naira, National Import Racing Association. So they actually mentioned that in the Fast and Furious movie. I'm trying to go legit and get with the Naira circuit. So during that period, we had 11 races all over the country, the United States. It was a professional series. People got paid out. Uh, you know, at the end of the year, there was a $100,000 championship purse. So these were all the famous racers of the time. Stefan Papadakis, you know, R. R. Slaney and Lisa Kubo, all those people that you read about in the import magazines of the late 1990s and early 2000s. And then while I was doing that, I was at a car show with my little yellow Supra, right. which I had built in 1998. And an older gentleman approaches me. He was probably about the age that I am today. Okay. okay. Back then. Okay? okay. So I was like, this, who's this old dude cock talking to me about the cars, right? He had a Hawaiian shirt. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we had a nice conversation and he went off. I've always been the kind of person. If somebody wants to talk to me about the car, one thing I'm really good is about reading people. I understand if, if they're speaking the language, so yeah. forth, then I'll speak the language to them. If they're asking basic questions and they don't know a lot about it so that I changed my dialogue. Yeah. Apparently yeah. it struck a, a, a nerve with this guy because he, he called up our, my office at Naira about a week later and I didn't know it was the same guy. He says, Hey, we're look, working on this movie called red line. And I saw your ad in the super street magazine. And I was hoping uh, I could have a discussion with you because uh, I think we're going to need cars like the cars we see in this magazine. Can you help me with that? Sure, let's have a discussion. So he comes to my office, and I have this plaque on my wall of my yellow Supra, which is literally sitting right over here. I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from a Turbo magazine. Turbo magazine, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Turbo and high-tech performance or something. And he goes, you know, I was at a car show, and I saw a car just like that. And I said, yeah, (laughs) that's my car. (laughs) And I'm laughing now. Now I make the connection. I go, you were talking to me. Right. I was. And I said, what, all white people look the same to you? <laughs> he's white, too. He's a wonderful guy. He's been in the, picture, in the motion picture industry for 40 years. So he invites me to Universal Pictures with my little yellow car. And I tell the story in my book and on my YouTube channel. Um, so I drive the car to Universal's back lot and I pull up there to the booth. It's a guarded gate shack and this very aggro looking guy. Big dude. Kind of looks like a cross between. Uh, James Earl Jones and Samuel Jackson. <laughs> he just looked like a former military guy and a bodybuilder, the kind of guy you didn't want to mess around with. Yeah. And I give him my name and he looks at me like, what the fuck is this car doing here? <laughs> and he turns his back, but I can hear him talking. He's here. 
and he comes out and he goes, stand, stand by a moment. And this little golf cart with a little blue siren on the top, woo, 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 comes up, turns around. The guy gets out, another aggro looking guy he goes, follow me and don't deviate. So he pulls over to the side of the road here by the restaurant, which is called the commissary in uh, at Universal's back lot. And they put velvet ropes around the car and the guy drives away and he says, don't leave. About 10 minutes later, the whole entourage come down. Uh, Paul Walker, Rob Cohen, the guy, oh, Ben Diesel. I have no idea who any of these people are. And finally, I see my guy, David Martyr, who's going to be my boss. So we're talking. Rob Cohen, everybody's asking a ton of questions. I got people at the front of the, car, the engine, people looking at the inside of the car, people looking at the giant nitrous tanks in the back. Why you carry oxygen in your car? It's not oxygen, it's nitrous. <laughs> Why do you have nitrous oxide in your car? So I'm telling the story. They invite me upstairs and I go into this Hollywood director's office, which is exactly like it looks. It's a big desk, right? With a pile of what looked to be scripts oh, that he man. was reading and turning down or whatever, right? Come to find out they were all just revisions of the script he's working on right now. And then there's pictures of him with Arnold Schwarzenegger because in frames up on his oh, credenza there because he worked on called Running Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so which was one of my favorite movies of that time. And they were asking all kinds of questions. Uh, you know, the, the script that David Martyr gave me at the meeting, I read it about three days later on an airplane. And it was clear that they did some research, but it was clear that they had – no idea about cars because they wanted to put Vin Diesel on a front wheel drive Buick Regal. <laughs> Can you imagine if that actually happened? I mean, he, I, I knew that they meant the Buick Regal Grand National, but it, it was a front wheel, a 1991 Buick Regal. And I'm like, you, I don't think you think, I don't think you think that, I don't think that you know what that car is. It's a different car than the 87s, anyway. So I said, well, um, <sighs> Look, there's kind of a food chain of cards in the, in the tuner world. And the, and the movies was about tuner cars. We weren't talking about Mustangs and Camaros or Firebirds. Right. And that's right. not no place in this movie. They just wanted a tuner car. So I went up to the grease board. I just jumped up and I took this eraser and just erased this whole one side of the. Oh, you know, man. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I said, OK, here is the food chain of cars. R34, R33, R32, GTR Skyline. Then you get down to. Toyota Supras, FD3S, RX7s, 3000 GTs, Z32, 300 ZXs. You have to remember this is the year 2000, okay? There were no Subaru WRXs in this company, in this country, no WRXs. Wow. Uh, WRXTIs wow. didn't exist. Uh, the 350Z didn't exist. The BMW E46 M3 did not exist. The uh, IS300 was not here yet. So this was like, so this, this was, this was like a, a- but different language for them, probably, right? They probably had no idea about these cars. Well, I'm sure a few people knew what, what few what some of these cars were, but by and large, I would say maybe two or three people in that meeting had yeah. ever heard of those cars, even just heard of them in passing. Right. So they said, "Okay, you're going to be our technical advisor." And I said, "I already have a job." So you're going to be an advisor. So we're going to come up to the picture car world. So I was talking to them about my connections because I was running the Naira series. I knew all the marketing directors of all the companies that make parts for tuner cars right? because they, they were our sponsors. And I was on a first name basis with these people because they were at our races every weekend. Right. So, right. so I was, I said, I can, I have connections. I can reach out to those con- connections to get these parts 
you know, either on loan or free or for promotional consideration or cheap. And that was another reason why they brought me on board because I had a lot of connections with that and with the car club. So um, a fellow by the name of RJ Devera, I was in his car club with his mother. Uh, he was very well connected to the tuna seg- segment as well. He was a very young guy. He was working for me at the time. He was my car show director. And so he knew a lot of people in the uh, subculture of these tuna cars, people who go to car shows and so forth and whatnot. So he was uh, appointed as te- co-technical advisor. And he was instrumental in helping us find extras for the for the movie because when we when we put out the call for extra cars, for example, yeah. there was no way to get it out. You know, you, the only way you could do was the automotive forums back then. You go to HondaTech.com and say we're doing a movie. We need you know 150 Ooh, right. Hondas. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was no OnlyFans. There was none of that. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, so he was instrumental in, in, in populating those sets, which was very, very important to the movie, as you probably can guess. So when it came to the cars, it was then I started working with David Martyr at the picture car warehouse in El Segundo. And we were buying cars off of eBay back then. That's the way you bought them. It just, wow. just wasn't much. We were paying about 17000 to $24,000 for uh, good condition Toyota Mark IV Supras. And as you know, the prices today, they're six figures for a diesel mm-hmm. turbo one. Yeah. So that's that was the market, you know, 22 years ago. So we had to put together a number of cars. You know, some of the cars, you have a hero car, which is the beautiful, shiny one. Everything works on that car. You know, it's the shiniest one. It's got the proper equipment and all the other replicas, the stunt cars and the process cars are fashioned after that car. Right. So the cosmetically from the exterior, from 25 feet away, you literally cannot tell the difference. And I can right. tell you that definitively because my car was parked in a row five of my supras right i couldn't figure out which one was mine as i'm walking by <laughs> the cars i had to use my key fob to disarm the, uh, the alarm because the only way you could tell is by looking through the vents because my car had the only one with the see-through vents right, right? all the right, other ones right. are covered up because they're not shiny engines so there was that kind of thing so it was a long process and i worked on that movie for you know script consultation all the way through production stunts all that shit you know i was there for most of it and then after the movie i was there for sound recordings i actually uh, gathered up everybody with their cars to go up to a runway you know about uh 40 miles north of los angeles deserted and all we did is drive our cars up and down the runway at high speed for all day like from that sounds like gone. so much fun man yeah so they were had you know these if you ever watch uh football matches you they have these big dishes that look like a radar dish for a microphone yeah Yeah, he's got these guys standing in the middle of the runway as we're going by at 140 miles an hour and all that stuff is covered in my videos i'm talking about i I mean i i i have to ask right um your your success to date and the fact that you've been around cars for so much of your life has that been on purpose creek or has that been just the way that the world has kind of treated you. Um, and the reason I ask is because, um, you know, for, for many people that I know, including myself, when it comes to doing something that you love, um, it, it, it can sometimes be forced or it can almost be like a bit of like a natural thing. For you, which one has it been? Has it been more natural? Has it been kind of like more kind of forced in that sense? No, it's my, it's, it's my choice. I always said to myself, you know, after after my teen years, and you know, those years between 16 and 24 years of age, pretty much, 
I worked on cars because of a need to, and I, I started liking it. So, but I knew I liked cars because at my, at the time I was like 14, my, my wall was full of skiing pictures out of magazines and skateboarding pictures, which is what I did. And then at 15 and a half, I realized, you know, I'm close to getting my driver's license. Get, once you get a driver's license, it equals freedom. I can yeah. go on a proper date with my girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wanted to build cool cars. So fortunately, it was very easy back then. And as time went over, all along, you know, by, I would say, the year 2000, 2000 2001, I was like, I'm only going to do the work on cars that I want to do myself. Everything. If I have to chain head gaskets, that's menial work. I don't want to do that. Right. You know, so I'll send okay. to a shop. Is the doing fixes or, or, or extensive fabrication to go to a shop? But if it's a little stuff, installing a stereo or you know putting on an intake or you know the intercooler or something like that, I have no problem doing that. But I'm not taking my transmission, my apartment, my garage. So yeah, yeah. And so I'm still a car, car car guy today. I have an R35 GTR. I've been wow. through 43 cars in my life. <laughs> Two. Two Lamborghini Diablos, a BMW wide body uh, M3 E46. It's called Uber M3. You can look it up. The car still exists. It's in uh, South Carolina, uh, owned by a buddy of mine by uh, the name of Rusty. Um, I've had an SL600, CLK500, CLK55, Audi RS4. I've just been through a shit ton of cars, Porsche turbos, all that kind of stuff. And um, at any point in your career, Craig, did you ever go through a phase of thinking, you know what, um, this whole thing about being into cars and, and, and delving into it and being around them and, and building something out of it. Did you ever go through a phase where it was like, you know what, it's not working out and I'm going to look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build what some would argue is like a safe career, right? Uh, did you did you ever kind of go through a phase, or is it always well? Been I wasn't kind of. I wasn't working in car uh, positions, you know, as automotive related positions, you know, um, as a career because there's only so many things you can do. You know, you either run a shop, which I did not want to do, all right, or you work for one of these companies like uh, Ibox Springs or Magnaflow, blah blah blah. Ibox, I left uh, when asked. Um, by super straight, but I was looking for a job anyway because the president was a fucking abusive piece of shit. And so I couldn't wait to get away from that guy. That guy had to go through anger management. Wow. And then I worked for Magnaflow for six years. Uh, what was it, 2003? And the son of the owner is uh, narcissistic. I mean, this guy is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Wow. And yeah, actually, I had to sue them in court. So uh, that guy is a scumbag. <laughs> so I was tired of working for other people. Yeah. So I started doing consultation stuff. So for the years of 2008 through about 2012, I was working as a subcontractor for a company called AMCI, which was working for JD Powers. And I was doing things like ride and drives. Like we would go out for Cadillac, for example. We went up to a racetrack. And we were doing the launch of the CTSV. I forget what year that was. I think it was a little earlier than that. I think I did a, a, a spec program for them like 2000. I don't remember the year. I, I want to say it's earlier than that, like 2005 spec program. Anyway, so they brought me back and we were doing ride and drives for journalists. And then we were doing uh, dealer training so that we bring, you know, hundreds of dealers from all over the country to see this car in action at our track in wherever 
Bucks, North Tennessee, Florida, Atlanta, whatever, and do ride drive, teach them about the cars and then do comparables, you know, let them drive the competition and talk them through the features and that. And that was contract work. And I did that for years, years. I was doing stuff for Goodyear tires. So I got to visit the factory, get trained on how tires are built. And I go do ride and drives for their dealers. And then uh, turned into JD Power dealership audits. So we would go to Lexus, Ford, Toyota, and uh, Chrysler. No, not Chrysler, BMW. BMW dealers. And we would audit their sales process. Oh, you know, wow. for, for custom, customer CSI in America, it's called customer satisfaction index right and so we would go through the process of the sales you know take a look how these people are treated when they arrive you know how the sales process works how the training process works especially for bmw because they're very complicated it's so complex that you can't the the salesman cannot train these people in the dealership when you get into a dealership you want to get in get through your financing term you want to get the hell out and then they call, now BMW implemented a program where they call you up two weeks later and say, hi, Bob, I was like everything over there. You want to uh, schedule a second training so that we can get into how to work everything in the car. And they go to your house and they sit in your garage and they show you how to do everything. Wow. And ironically, years later, what was that? 2000, 2016, uh, my son was just out of the army and he came to live with us with his wife. Uh, while he was finishing school for occupational therapy. And so he was working. I got him a job at one of the dealers uh, here in Southern California as a second delivery specialist. And for a kid who was at the time, let me do the math, 25, I think, 24, yeah. 25. Yeah. He's driving BMWs home every night, M3, <laughs> M4, M5, whatever, and pull up in the garage. My God. Thank God we had a big garage at the time. <laughs> I, I have to ask, right? What's it like being on, uh, or, or, to, 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 to be involved with one of the most famous uh, film franchises of all time, The Fast and Furious, right? I mean, you know, you've had various levels of involvement at various stages of, of the franchise. How do you describe your experience? What's it like? Just talk us through that, man. So, the, the first movie, like I said in my book, that first chapter of my book is called Dumb Luck. And that's what it was. It was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, thousands of people in this industry could do the exact same better, exact, exact same job, if not at least an equal or better. So I was lucky to be selected. And because of my connections, you know, I, I, they, they rented my Supra. They rented my Maxima. They rented my Skyline for Too Fast, Too Furious. I was kind of a package deal, you know. I had the connections to the two, to the companies and so forth, so it worked out for everybody. They treated me like gold. They really, really, really did. I'm nobody. I'm John Nobody. I'm nobody. I'm inconsequential. I'm just a plain person. So the fact that they treated me with such great respect, it was I was just blown away. The first movie in particular, Rob Cohen, uh, Neil Moritz, um, John Weiser, um, John Feinblatt, all the people in the picture car crew, and everybody else. Ted Mosier, I saw who I do. I still do work with Ted Mosier to this day. So it was just an amazing experience. Then we get to Too Fast and Furious. We have a whole new director, John Singleton, who who had done Boys in the Hood, which was a really good movie. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really enjoyed that movie. Now he. He was a funny guy. He passed away recently, not too long ago. So I was sitting at this table 
at Universal, when we were talking about the Too Fast, Too Furious, this table's got about 19 people sitting there, all big wigs, and me, my dumb ass is sitting in that <laughs> meeting. And I've got John Singleton, two seats to the left of me. I've oh, got uh, Ted Mosier, the picture car captain, sitting next to me. I've got David Martyr, my boss, sitting next to me. And across from me is a lady called uh, Melissa. I can't remember her name. That's out top of my head. I have to look at my book. I forget her name. She was in charge of getting uh, automotive uh, brands to partake of product placement within the franchise. So she jumps in. Oh, Melissa Kroll, that's it. That's it, Kroll. Anyway, so so we have, she's like, like this. Okay, so we're going through the cars, right? And I'm having the same list again. I said, these are the cars that we want to do. We've already designed a, a skyline, so we've got that. And those cars are inbound from Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But uh, for Brian's car, um, what we really want to do is put him in the Dodge Neon SRT4. Oh. And I'm writhing in my seat. I'm like. Melissa Kroll and I and and she looked at me goes is that a good car (laughs) um the Dodge Neon is a base economy car um that's basically a rental car I mean I think these things are standard with roll down windows I think you pretty much every you know that kind of thing she goes well this is a special one and I said yes I know all about it I read about it the problem with that car, it has no reputation in the industry as being a performance car. People are going to look at that and say, what in the, well, that, I can get that car to rental. There's nothing special about that car. Because well, what about if you fix it up? And then somebody from this table, I forget if, if it was David Martyr or his son or somebody else, but somebody who knew something like cars. And they said, well, we, we can put nitrous on it. And I said, it's a, a, <laughs> we know nitrous is a bottle that you can't see from the outside of the car. She said, what are you saying? I said, I'm saying is, no matter how you modify it, it's putting lipstick on a pig, okay? <laughs> That's just what it is. And then my boss, he reached over and grabbed my wrist. If you've ever seen that movie, Red October? No, no, no. You haven't seen it? Well, there's a scene in there where James Earl Jones uh, is uh, sitting there with one of his consultants, and his consultants gets kind of mouthy with the, with the people at the table, and he grabs his wrist like, shut up now, shut up. <laughs> And as she said to me, are you telling me to turn down X million dollars of uh, promotional consideration? I'm not going to reveal the number because it was substantial and probably confidential. But anyway, I said, that's not what I'm telling you. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now that I was tasked by John Singleton to to provide authenticity to this movie. Okay, now I understand that I'm an advisor. I'm giving you advice. And so Singleton looks over down the line where I'm sitting, goes Lieberman. I'm paying you for your technical advice. I don't want no booty ass shit in this movie. If that's booty ass <laughs> shit, I need to know right now. Like I said, lipstick on a pig. And that was that. So what did they do? I said, if we're doing something with Dodge, why don't we get some of their Vipers? We can definitely use the Vipers. That would be great. And you don't have to have all tuner cars. We're already putting in a Challenger and a Camaro in the thing yeah. now. Yeah. Get a Viper. Get some Vipers in there. We can do that. We can have a whole gang of Vipers. It would be fantastic. Everybody would love that. Even tuner guys. And that's what they did. They got some vipers, but you know, they all, only one character had a viper. So, 
But you know, I mean, it, it must feel pretty awesome, right? To look, to watch these films and to think, oh man, like I actually contributed towards that and that and that. And like, when you look back at it, how does it feel, man? When I look back at it, have you ever watched yourself on uh, home movies when you were a kid, when you were a yeah. little dorky Unfor- kid? Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so you, you know you know what it is. And the other thing is when you're standing there when they're filming, there's no music, there's no sound effects, and everything's – it looks like the cars are doing 120 miles an hour and they're really doing 60. Okay? <laughs> so just, cut. I was like, this is going to suck. <laughs> But it, it showed how little I knew about movie production because when it cuts all together with the music and the smoke and the effects and the and all the sound effects and everything, it just looks like it goes fast. But the other thing is, you know, when you're standing there on set, you have to realize that there's going to be so much more good done in post-production yeah. that it's yeah. going to be very different than what you think it is. And so I, I hadn't seen that yet until I started seeing the movie come together in early edits. I was there when they were recording. Um, uh, do you remember the scene where they walk, where uh, the red RX-7 pulls up to the street races? Yes, the RX-7. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so let me, tell you, uh, let me tell you a little funny thing. And I didn't know this. When, people, when all those people were talking there, they were not recording the voices there. They were not. None of it. What? I was called to Universal to uh, to do ADR loops. And this is the first time I saw the movie. So I walk into this giant sound stage thing. It's low roof. The whole room is padded. And they've got about 20 people in there, men and women, you know, young people, 20s to, I don't know, early 30s. And they have a microphone hanging from the ceiling right in the center. And they're walking around in the circle. They have professional lip readers there. And so I'm sitting there working with the lip reader. This, you know, they're, they're saying this, 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 this. So I was there to consult them on what kind of technical terms they should be talking about when they're, when they're looking at these cars. Right. Check out the body kit on that thing. Check out the, oh, man, they all side Andrew Racing Mesh. Ah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, so I'm there. So we're going through multiple scenes, you know, background discussion and so forth, whatnot. That's what so that, I'm was, seeing that, was, that wasn't that wasn't like separate to the actual footage being being Month, months later. Wow. Months. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Oh wow. I mean the, the other thing that, that, that kind of um that must be kind of um somewhat crazy is um uh, it's like you start, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to kind of watch these films you know, back and there must be a bit of a nostalgic feeling as well. Right. Like, um, no, it's, of... it's a cringe feeling. <laughs> it's, it's, I'll tell you why it's a cringe feeling because I couldn't be on set every day. I had a full-time job. The part where he says Motex system exhaust. I did not see that edit until I was in a, a, a private screening that Rob Cohen, uh, uh, set up so the people who had rented our cars to Universal could get a preview of the movie. That's the first time I saw it. I was like, where the hell did you come up with that? So it turns out the three-page sheet that I had created for them for technical terms you could use for yeah. cars, yeah. you know, they were just mixing and mat- matching like you're talking about uh, living room furniture. Like this Motex system exhaust, 
I don't know how they came up with that. I think or my pro, Paul probably ad lib because at that point he didn't know much about cars at all, right. Um, right. like really not much at all. Wow, was just started getting into it. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, from from your perspective, why do you think that the franchise was as successful as it obviously was? Well, it wasn't really. <laughs> well, it sucks. So the first movie did $211 million on a $38 million budget. The second movie did, I think, $159 million on a $75 million budget. And the, the ratio is supposed to be about four to one. So oh, whatever you spent, right. yeah, about to, a successful movie is four to one return. Right, right. So I guess when you put it like that, it wasn't, it wasn't from a box office perspective. It wasn't really. But, but you have to understand how sequels are done. So in every movie, before the movie comes out, they do it and they show the movie in test markets, right? So they were showing the movie Redline um, in test markets. I think it was 160 towns, something like that. I have the list somewhere. And they get a small audience and they're 50, 100 people or whatever it is. And then they ask questions about um, which was your favorite character? Well, how would you rate this character? How would you rate the story? Blah, 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 blah. Ben and one years ago. Oh, God. What year was that? I was a kid in the 1980s. It was a shit movie. I think it went straight to DVD. <laughs> VHS. Oh, VHS. wow. Yeah, that's how old I am. Okay. <laughs> yes, it had sound for all you people going. Did he, was he talking about silent films back in the 1900s? <laughs> No, not that old, but thanks for thinking that. Um, so what they do is they take a look at the response of the audience after the movie comes out. And what they realize is that the Latino population who, uh, that, excuse me, let me rephrase that. The, the makeup of the audience was about, initially it was about, I want to say 40 something percent Caucasian. And then the second biggest group was Latinos, Latinos. And they, uh, Hispanics, whatever. I think I'm not, I should actually look that up. Latinos, Hispanics. I know that's not the same thing, but you get the idea. Um, So that was the biggest thing. And then there was a small subset. I think it was under 15%, which was African-American. So they want to try to reach the audience. And you notice this, okay? And here's how, how you can notice this. When they're looking at those movies, okay, you get Fast One and and Two Fast, Two Furious, which was a horrible movie. After the first movie, when I was driving my my super, because I still have my super back then, I drove into car shows and people were looking at the car. What is that piece of shit? What is the graphic? Why is there a nuclear gladiator on the side of the car? It didn't resonate with the... uh, with the audiences because nobody was doing that shit. So, but uh, that's yeah. a whole different story. So too fast, too furious comes out. It wasn't, in my opinion, a great movie. It was great fun making that movie. John Singleton's crew, a bunch of wild children, <laughs> but they got the shit done, man. And they were really fantastic. And it was a fun movie to make. Uh, it was a little difficult because the guy who was the art director didn't know much about cars. And so there was a little bit of battle there, but anyway, it came up and then they switched gears drifting was becoming popular and so they wanted to make something to kind of get back to the roots of what's actually going on in the, in the tuna market and they did that they were doing a movie about drifting the problem is 98 percent of the american population have never heard of drifting couldn't care less 
Because us old white guys, we like to call a power slide back. Now we take our pickup trucks and run the farmer slide to one side, we slide to the other side, whatnot. <laughs> anyway. And is that was that when Tokyo Drift came out? That's when to- Tokyo Drift came Which out. Which is my favorite film of all time. Like I just think it's just such an amazing film. I love it. I um, I agree. I agree. It's the best of the bunch. And then after that, I hadn't talked about Fast and Furious for, oh God, until about, until started back up again a little bit after Paul's death, but I never talked about it at all. My friends knew about it and they would make fun of it, blah, blah, blah. And then they asked me some questions here and there, but nothing. So after Paul passed away, I started getting more questions and so forth. And then um, by 2015, it was getting to be kind of a big deal. People were starting to build those cars because those people who were five years old when they watched the movie, now they're 20 years old. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there they won 15, 2016. I found my filing cabinet. I was moving from one house to another house, and I found my filing cabinet. And the filing cabinet is about a meter and a half long. Right. Right. It's a big cabinet. It's got all the documentation, oh, all the man. parts numbers, the invoices, the, the 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 cast notes, the phone numbers, the addresses, uh, you know, second unit uh, locations. Every it's all in there. Oh man! Then my wife said, "You know, you've got all these stories. You know, why don't you like do something with this? Why don't you like write a book or something? People write books all the time." And I said, all right, I'll, I'll write a book. So I sat down and did that for four months um, and pu- published it. And it was doing really well. It was number one in its category for four months. What's it take to write a book, Craig? Because I, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I guess, personally, to have the patience to kind of keep going and keep writing. I mean, like, was, was it quite hard to kind of keep the momentum going when you're writing it? Well, I, I, I provided an outline, but... Honestly, I, I would, if I had to do it again, I would go. I would go back and rewrite the book. I wrote it basically the way it was, you know, how I got started with it, and then I focused on the cars, the build of the cars, because those were the most of the questions I was getting. Why do we use this car? How did it come to be this car? What did you put on the car? That kind of stuff, that kind of thing, and then some of the stories about um, what happened on set, that kind of stuff. Now, I was originally going to do a picture book, but a, a picture book, if I had done that. First off, the pictures that I had were not very high resolution because 20 years ago, cameras were not that great. Right. Most people were still shooting with film back then, actually. And the digital cameras that existed, if you want anything more than about, you know, one megabit uh, image that you're going to have to buy a $3,000 camera. Not a, pe- not a lot of people were walking around oh. with those. Wow. So I said, you know what? I don't want to do that because a, a, a book, a picture book, a t- coffee table book would cost people $40. And to try, try to sell a 15-year-old kid a $40 coffee table book is not going to be worth, worth it. Yeah. It's not going to happen. So I decided I was just going to create an Instagram page to show all the pictures that I have, right? And if you go through my Instagram, it's yeah. pretty much every picture I have. Um, I realized that YouTube, you can monetize YouTube, right? right. So I started my channel by focusing on telling the stories. And I hate being on camera. My wife will tell you that. Really? You know yeah, I hate it. In my whole life, if you go through the, my, my mom's scrapbook, there's probably 20 to 30 pictures to cover my whole life. I hate, From a young age, I hated having my picture taken. Hated it. I could never tell. I could never tell. Well, good. I'm a good faker. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, honestly, I really don't like to have my picture taken. 
Yeah. Just a yeah. really walk on. I'm just, I just never got that gene for whatever, for, for whatever reason. So I started doing the YouTube stuff and I, that's how I built my channel. And as you notice, I've been moving further and further away from fast and furious stuff. I still do um, some stuff about fast and furious stuff. Um, I, uh, when I was over at uh, hanging out with Sung Kang, it was a year ago last summer. And uh, he asked me a weird question. It was like, how did you become kind of the keeper of the gatekeeper of information? I said, because I was in the right place at the right time through the whole, whole production process, pre-production, yeah. production, film editing, sound recording, marketing, uh, pr- press junket. I mean, it was just there from top to bottom. And very few people would be in that same thing because it's compartmentalized. The sound editors work in their little group, right? The right. editors work in their, their film editors work in their little group. So... I mean, because I, I, I actually want, want, wanted to come on to this, Craig, is uh, social media. And I think um, one of the things that I can see very, very clearly when I watch your Instagram page and when I uh, watch YouTube videos is there's a there's a real kind of community of people that, that, that you've built around around your 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 story. And when you look back at it now, I mean, your community is massive. There's like thousands and thousands of people who are like avidly trying to, you know, watch your content. And I suppose for me, like, what would you attribute um, your success on social media to? And linked to that, what would be your advice for those people who want to try and get onto social media and get their word out there? Well, I think um, I... You know, you're talking to me and watching me on my YouTube. I'm pretty much the same person everywhere, you know, whether it's a podcast or at a car show or on my YouTube. I'm, I am who I am. I'm not beholden to any sponsors. I don't have to watch my mouth. I don't have to say something that's not true or paint a rosy picture about something. If something sucks, I, I tell you it sucks. But always, always with the preface that it is my opinion based on my own personal experiences. So and the other thing is I'm a bit of a vigilante. I do not like people getting ripped off. I really, I really loathe that. And people are taking advantage of other people in the car segment. I'm not a big fan of that, of course. And I try and call that out. Some of the stories I've told about these people who were in the car industry um, and then got busted for like the payday loan guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one that episode I did. So I just know the truth, you know, and I've, I've learned, I've hang, I've hung out with very di- different groups. I've been in the BMW community. I've been in the Lamborghini community. I've been in the Porsche community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there are some shady mofos running around. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I do not hang, you know, I, you notice that I'm very careful to not be hanging around the people who are doing those, uh, you know, road rally stuff anymore. Right. Yeah. These, these guys who are just go, let's go on a cruise. A cruise means they're playing grab ass for 200 miles. Right. That's what it is. You're right. weaving through traffic, and I don't do any of that stuff. Right, right, right. I mean, because uh, I think what, what's what's interesting is when you talked about how it all started, you did it because you wanted to, I guess, obviously showcase the pictures of you know what was going on and 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 you know, link to your life and your career and the story of Fast Furious. Um, it was never about, from what I understand, it was it was never about trying to get a massive following what 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 seems to have happened is it's kind of a byproduct right of um you wanting to just share your love <laughs> that the community grew and grew and grew is that 
Is that is that is that fair to say? It, it's fair to say to a point, to be honest with you. My wife was giving me a hard time committing so much time to doing this stuff. I'm answering people all the time. Any, ask anybody who's been on my Instagram. If they send me a question, I usually answer the question within hours. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sometimes within in minutes. You know, if I, if I get a free moment, I check to see what have I got going. Why is that, Craig? Like what, like, what is it that is, makes you so committed and so determined? Like, what is it that drives you, man? Well, it's just fun to share the information and that you have to understand you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself. If you've ever been in a situation where you can give to a young person, right? Yeah. The best example I can use is this. Uh, I have these, and this happens every weekend. Every time I go to a car show, like cars and coffee, I'm pretty much a regular there. These people get fascinated with the car. And to me, it's no big deal. You know, you just kind of, it's, 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 it's not a Ferrari or anything, but these kids today, uh, this past weekend came up from Torrance, right? Guys, Torrance is quite a bit of drive from us, probably 45 minutes at least. Young kids, you know, young guys are 18 years old. They're supposed to be sleeping into 11 a.m. These kids drove all the way down, you know, that far to be there at 8.30 in the morning. This kid was almost crying when he saw the the R35. And I saw him, you know, trying to look inside the car. My car had tinted windows. And I said, you want to get in the car? And he literally started to break down and cry. Oh, man. Wow kid this kid had he's just a cool he just looked like a movie character himself you know he had the dreadlocks you know the short dreadlocks he had like gold teeth and everything and this cool i, I walked i was volunteering that day and i walked them in that first time they were I was just engaging them in conversation and they were clearly passionate car enthusiasts and they were just getting into it and i remember when i was a kid i had a neighbor lived down the street and who had over no r5 turbo and i had just got my driver's license i had hadn't had him for a year he says, you want to go for a ride? And I got in this car. And at that time, it was the fastest thing I had ever been in. So we go up the road. I was living in Canyon Country at the time. And then we turned around in a parking lot. And he jumped out. We come out, opened my door. And I was like, what did I do? What did I do? He says, you want to drive it? Whoa. <laughs> and I said, I, I promised myself that day, if I was ever in a position to have a car that somebody was really, really Google about, uh, then I would want to share it with them. And I've done that my whole life since. That's, that is the most beautiful stuff I've had in a very long time, Craig. And I think, you know, one of the kind of things that kind of stands out to me is that your success has never been the result of chasing fame or money. It's actually, and this was going back to when I began the podcast, which was, it's just so clear to me that it's based on a genuine and true passion and love for the game. Um, but also a desire to give back because you're right in that situation. I'm sure many people will kind of just, you know, uh, not, not go the extra mile to respond to every single message and to be as dedicated as you are. But, you know, it's just, it's just amazing how much you want to try and give back and share this amazing life that you've obviously led. Um, so I guess we've spent a lot of time talking about your past and your career what's what what's up ahead for you man what are you uh what are you working on right now and what's the future hold man just got finished shooting a documentary about the fast and furious franchise which will be coming out in the next few months right. um i got invited by ironically 20 years later the same people who interviewed me for the behind the scenes dvd features um if you're not aware there's a special edition of the fast and furious on a dvd called the tricked out edition Yes, I've about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you can find it online, you should check it out because me and a Playboy Playmate 
uh, build a Mitsubishi Evo on camera together. Oh, man. Completely unscripted, no guidance, just do it. Oh, my God. Wow. She's a lovely gal. She was a lot of fun. She's a very nice girl. She was in engineering school, I think. Uh, she recently married uh, the son of a, a giant car dealership network, but she was a wonderful girl. And we had a lot of fun shooting together, and she's just great sport. So uh, that same company called me up and said, we're interviewing at the 20 years of Fast and Furious stuff. So we're bringing in the people who had stuff to do with the moving. Somehow they got my name. And so I went up there and I went interviewed for three and a half hours. What was fascinating to them is I have hundreds of pictures taken on set that nobody has. Nobody. Not the directors, not the producers, <laughs> not anybody. I have footage. Okay. So I sent them all the footage. Yeah. yeah. I, I, too, too fast, too furious. I bought a camcorder, right? This little VHSC camcorder. Yeah. And I recorded hours of film at the picture car warehouse. Nobody has that. <laughs> and so they got me. They're still hitting me up for other pictures and other documentation stuff because nobody saved it. Oh, man. Wow. So I'm doing that. And then I'm just still doing my YouTube channel because, uh, you know, I've written for car magazines for years. Um, and I'm still like talking about cars. I do a lot. I'm a digital marketing now. So I write for uh, a couple of companies that are in the automotive space, but I have my own business. It's all digital yeah. marketing websites, that kind of stuff. And we have a variety of clients, but beyond that, I'm just enjoying life at this point. I do my car stuff. I got play around with my cars. I hang out with other car people. That's my jam. That's it. But I'm just kind of taking it easy. I feel like I traveled so much in my early days, yeah, uh, working yeah, yeah. for companies like NGK spark plugs and, uh, and even I bought to extent. Um, I'm just kind of like, you know, I did the SEMA show for 16 years in a row. That was brutal. I'm kind of over that. Do you, um, you ever get negativity on, on, uh, on, uh, online? Like, do you ever get people kind of like, you know, post negative stuff or, you know, kind of like just, 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 just be dicks. Like, <laughs> you, you know, a good friend of mine, Ed Bolian, who runs VinWiki, which is one of the biggest uh, YouTube channels in the world. Um, he said to me, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't even bother answering the comments. Yeah. Yeah. And so I split the difference. I go through the first 24 hours because in my mindset, the people who are on there 24 hours, you know, in the first 24 hours are pretty, what I call super fans. And I start to recognize their usernames. And so if they ask yeah, a legitimate question, and then sometimes they go in there and give some negativity, like, uh, Oh, what was the one I had last week? Somebody, uh, oh, well, one of my sponsors is Roman is, is a company, uh, self, self-help, uh, online stuff where like, if you have erectile dysfunction or you have low testosterone or anything yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. they do that. Right. So that's one of my sponsors. And so I have a commercial on there and he goes, Oh, well, what are you now you're doing ED stuff. And I said, let me ask you a question. Is this your jam? You watch a 12-minute video that took a script, research, yada, 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 and that's what you're pissed about? No. Why don't you ask for your money back? <laughs> oh, yes, my channel is free. <laughs> Do you also write to everybody else who takes a sponsorship from a company that you don't like? Here's a hint for you. Click. Yeah, yeah. It, it's. I mean, I, I, I've only just decided to experience it now, and it's, it's particularly prevalent on uh, – on 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 TikTok, and I think initially I was a bit like, 
it was it was personal right it was about how I looked it was about what I was wearing it was about it wasn't even like you are incorrect about the facts it was like proper personal and I think it took me a while to kind of realize you know what like there's people out there who just kind of live to kind of push people down that's just how they that's just how they are and like they get a bit of a buzz out of it and in actuality it's a reflection of whatever shit they're going through wait a minute possibly wait a minute how you looked yeah yeah man what what did did not did they not like the style of your your eyeglasses no i you know what i'll actually repeat what the comment was right it was it went something like i did a video saying here are the top five most ugliest cars in the uk right and so i went through number one number two number three number four number five and someone wrote number six your face and i was like what (laughs) this is crazy um it, it was it was I mean I, I look back I laugh at it now but I ask everyone out there who's like you know really really smashing it in the uh, social media like how do you get through this stuff like it, it can be very very tough I've kind of moved past it but you know what um you're you're obviously you know you've obviously been through that phase and you're probably still going through it but I have to ask how you how you kind of compute all that sort of stuff. You know what? I, I have I was just in my yearly medical exam. <laughs> they were asking me questions about uh, depression and everything. I said I'm probably the happiest person you know. I said, how do you do that? You know, and I said I don't give anybody free space in my free rent in my head. Oh, I love I've that. never met this person, and I always since my mother used to say this: How can you hate somebody that you've never met? Yeah, you don't like them because the way they look. Believe me, in my lifetime, I've looked at some people like, "Wow, um, uh, should I not like them because they have tattoos on their neck or anything like this or something like that?" You can't judge a book book by its cover. You have to judge them by their actions, right? So you know, it's always fine to have some reservations about a person because maybe the way they dress. Or maybe the way they seem to carry themselves, but I've I've found myself to be wrong many many times about you know looking at a person say that person looks like uh, he or she I mean for example uh, I see all the if you've been on Instagram at all you see all these pretty girls on the yeah. internet and it keeps rolling through my feed I don't know what kind of algorithm that I instituted <laughs> with my thing and all that but here we are so. But I look at these girls with these tattoos, and I think of it from a parental status. I would not want my daughter to have a shitload of t- tattoos, only because in some places they're going to be judged if they try to get work. You know, if you have full sleeves, it used to be like really a bad like thing in America. But now, it's, you know, there's a lot of people. Out, but when you start doing it on your neck and all over your body, I think to myself personally, just personal, I don't find that very attractive because you're ruining in my it's like. It's like putting graffiti on the Mona Lisa. That's the way I look at it. These people have they have natural beauty, and if they want to do that for themselves, all, all you know, I'm all for it. But it's not my kind of thing. But how do you judge a person? And I know plenty of people who have looked a certain way or what that other people might not like. But I don't judge it like that. I just judge them for their personality. You know, yeah, they're good yeah. people. Yeah. 
it's yeah it was just a, it was just amazing when i when i was going through it and I'm, I'm always keen to learn how other people kind of you know get 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 through it but that idea of not giving people free rent in your headspace is really powerful actually really powerful love it if you, if you don't like the comments i just delete them if they're just yeah. going to be catch children i just delete it you know exactly. I would, exactly what really what really pisses me off is when people start defaming defending criminals when they start defending these people doing the the uh the intersection takeovers and all that, that's a big thing for me. Uh, I am tired of seeing young people get killed at yeah. these things. I, I, I writhe in my seat when I see people run out in the middle of an intersection and then get hit and they fall to the floor, all that kind of stuff. That is morbid stuff. And you talk about you know, censorship with Facebook and, and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Personally, I think all those things should be taken down and people putting their posts those up should be have their channels blocked. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, I um I I took it seriously before, but I took it even more seriously after my daughter was born. Um after my daughter was born, which is about five months ago, I realized that um the people that are out there doing it are actually putting me at risk and putting my family at risk. Sure. Uh, even I mean you know what? If you don't care about your own life, that's on you, right? But when you start doing shit like that, you're actually causing other people to be affected. And that was... Right. What, and that's it. And that's it. Know, and that was my you issue. Know, in my days, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite. My days, we used to go to street races. It was in a, and it was at an re- industrial park. And nobody yeah. was stupid enough to stand past the starting line because you knew if a car comes at you at 100 miles an hour, you're going to get killed, even if you're standing on the sidewalk. But this generation is, I have to think that people are all about the Instagram fame and all that kind of shit to just get the shot. And I think these people are either more reckless than we were back then to desensitize to the violence and so forth and whatnot. But it's tragic. These young people are dying just to watch car races and in illegal places. It just makes me sad because the tragic loss of life, everybody thinks it's never going to happen to them. It does. But yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, I guess. uh, I guess uh, two final things from yourself, Craig. Um, what is it that kind of keeps you uh, stuck? That what is it that kind of just keeps you going every single day with the level of momentum and passion and love? What is it that kind of just keeps you going? And finally, uh, for young people out there who will be listening to this, or for anyone listening to this, what would be your top three pieces of advice? Uh, who are you know, in a job they absolutely hate, they're not happy, they want to leave, they want to either go to the car space or they want to go in a different direction. What would be your advice for those people that are kind of out there right now? For the car space, unless you're in electrical electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, you're going to have a very tough road. The days of working on cars is are not bright because, you know, gasoline cars are going to go away at some point of course they'll still be around for another 50 years people still driving them just like they're driving 1960s mustangs but if you want to be broke be a mechanic okay (laughs) you there's just no money in it i'm sorry you work i have friends who have been with techs for years at at bmw dealerships and you think these guys would be making a hundred hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year nope not the case I told this to my son. He wanted to work in the car industry. I said, well, do you really want to work in the car industry or do you want to make enough money to buy the cars that you really want? Yeah. So that's such a good when, point. when he got out of the army, I said to him, you either need to go on medical or computers or you're going to be broke the rest of your life. This is, these are the two things that you can do right now. And you may guarantee to be, have a job that's not going to be outsourced to, to China. 
So it's a global economy now, and those people who work in mechanic, as mechanics or other certain jobs are going to be probably outsourced to China in many ways. Uh, mechanics, when we get into electrical cars, it's basically plug it into a computer, and then the manufacturer is going to download the fix, and you're done. So what are you going to get for that? So you can do all sorts of things. But if you're thinking about working in the auto industry, I would strongly suggest you pick another path. Now, even if you think you suck at school, go to trade school, if you be a cabinet maker, building stuff, stuff that has to happen there where you live on the ground and there's a market for it, that kind of thing. So if you're like Germany does by their, you know, middle, uh, middle school, like junior high school, if you're not on the path to college you're and you're on the path to a vocation, right, when you're sponsored by a company, that kind of thing. So you have to do, you have to, and then for the people say, oh, I'm too old, bullshit. I have a girlfriend, a gal, a pal of mine, that she was 40 years old, a teenager at home, a 10-year-old home, divorced and living out in the sticks. And she was going to night school, carrying a day job. It took her nine years to get her nursing degree. Now she's wow. making six figures. Wow. Wow. So don't tell me it can't be done. It can be done. Filipinos, the American, uh, America, like England, is a great, uh, a great place to, for people a popular place for people to migrate. I have a lot of friends who have come from the Philippines, um, South Korea, and so forth. And all these people come over here with little English skills, most of them, and they still make themselves into nurses. So they not only do they learn the language, they go through nursing programs. And so there's no excuse for anybody in America to say, it's too hard. Really? You already speak the language. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's all it's all a question of motivation. Are you motivated to be, you know, on the right path or are you motivated to sit on the couch? And Absolutely. then don't cry to everybody else that minimum wage sucks because because you have minimal skills. Okay? You have to advance. I have reinvented myself three times in my life. Three times. 2000 in the year 2000 I decided I want to do video. By 2005 I realized that I really needed to do websites. So I started learning coding, blah 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 and here we are. That's so crazy. I knew I was going to be. You've been through three rounds of reinvention. That's amazing. Back in the old days, marketing was done in magazines. You buy an advertisement in a, in a magazine and hope that it makes the phone ring. Then they got digital marketing where everything was trackable. Okay. And that was my second generation. Yeah. My third generation was the introduction to digital media with video editing and coding and digital marketing. So, wow. Wow. Dare I say it, man. I mean, Craig, if you can go through three rounds of reinventing yourself and learning a whole new skill set, um, then, you know, for those that are out there who are looking to kind of build on their skill base or build a whole new skill base, look, man, you are the man to show like, that, that it can be done. So uh, honestly, um, it's so rare that I meet someone who um, has just kind of uh, built a career not only around what they love doing but also with a huge passion and desire to want to try and share their story and to give back and to be of service and um craig honestly thank you so much for sharing your story how you've got to where you've got to and your insights into um your success and for those that are looking to uh follow a similar path or to kind of you know, build a life around their passions and their interests. I hope that they can try and learn from you and your uh, and your story. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs>